Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Inej Hareten, and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where we shall be returning to Mark, Stephen, and Konsu as we look into episode four of Moon Knight, titled The Tomb. Huh, I wonder what the setting of this episode is going to be. I guess there's no way of knowing at this point. In terms of the format of the episode, it's going to be the same as usual. So we'll start with a little background information. Then a section on the historical accuracy. And finally, I shall review the episode. But before that, it is time to uphold tradition as I set the tone with my dramatic intro. Right. You have just escaped some mercenaries intent on killing you when you head down a long dark shaft in search of the Shabti of Amit the Devourer. As you creep amongst the narrow passages, little do you know that evil surrounds you, and it is only a matter of time before you face the dangers and challenges of the tomb. Right, so in this section, as said before, I'm just going to go over a few little details about the episode. As usual, this isn't going to be a huge part because we are ultimately talking about a 30-minute episode. Well, sort of 40 minutes, I suppose. Depends if you include the credits or not, which do go on forever with these Marvel series. I mean, I don't know if I'm the only one who does this, but the amount of times I just kind of forget and watch to the end of the credits, expecting there to be a post-credit scene, and then, huh, well, of course, there isn't any because it's just an episode. Anyway, um, unlike the first two episodes of Moon Knight, once again, there's no hidden QR code in this episode. Although Marvel did release a free digital copy of Universe X number six. This was a comic book that was published on March 10th in the year 2000, 
and it holds the main inspiration behind the live-action costume design from Moon Knight in this series. To be honest, I find this a little bit disappointing because I thought the QR codes were actually a, a really fun idea, as I've said in previous episodes on, on Moon Knight. And I just don't think it would have been that hard to include one in each episode. I don't think it would have taken up that much time or effort either. Like, for instance, say in this one, they could have just had a QR code on the Jeep, you know, before they go into the tomb. Or even on, like, say, one of the mercenaries' uniforms or something like that. It just feels a bit like a wasted opportunity. It's a small thing, I know, but I don't know. I just felt like they could have done something more here. Anyway, um... Towards the end of the episode, we see Stephen holding a Moon Knight toy. However, even at a glance, the toy does look not quite right. Its cape is roughly made and its face appears to be a bit distorted. This was done deliberately and the toy was not actually one created by Marvel. So instead it was an old Skeletor toy from the Masters of the Universe series, which had been painted and modified to look like Moon Knight. Personally, I like this. I think this is quite a cool little detail because it wouldn't really make sense for there to be Moon Knight toys in this universe. Not at this stage, at least, anyway. So the idea that he's made his own one is a really interesting and good little detail. For those who have seen the episode, you know why this would be a good detail. For those who don't, I don't want to ruin it, so watch the episode. Um, Spoiler, this was one of the better episodes to be honest. In terms of the cast, you've got the usual crew here, so Oscar Isaac playing Mark and Stephen, Ethan Hawke playing the villain Arthur Harrow, Mae Kalamawi as Layla, and we also have the introduction of Antonia Salib, who plays the goddess Towerat. Okay, we have now arrived at the historical accuracy section. So, as the name implies, I'm basically just going to go over the episode and talk about what it does well and poorly. First things first, shortly after Stephen and Layla enter the tomb, Stephen draws what's supposed to be an Eye of Horus in, like, the sand, and he claims that the eye is made up of six different parts. He claims that the edge of the eye accounts for smell, the pupil represents sight, the eyebrow represents thought, the corner of the eye represents hearing, the bottom represents touch, and the curl at the bottom, that looks a bit like a tongue, represents taste. First things first, I just want to say, he's not actually drawn the Eye of Horus here, he's drawn the Eye of Ra. This is actually a really common mistake that I do come across quite frequently, to be honest. So basically, the Eye of Horus, which is also known as the Wajet Eye, is the left one. Meanwhile, the Eye of Ra is the eye on the right. In terms of the Eye of Ra, this tended to represent the fiery rage of the sun and could also represent his protection. In one myth, it was said that Ra was growing old towards the end of his reign on Earth and many humans were beginning to go against his rules. In order to punish them, Ra made the cat-headed goddess Sekhmet out of the fire of his own eye and sent her to earth in order to punish those who went against him. However, after the fight, 
she had gained a thirst for blood and went on a killing spree and was even in danger of wiping out humankind as a whole. So you might say that Ra's plan here did backfire somewhat. In order to stop her, the gods led by Ra poured out a lake of beer that had been dyed red to look like blood. Sekhmet started lapping it up. And then, over time, as she grew drunker, she became more placid and eventually returned to Ra's side. I always find this one a little bit weird because, well, alcohol can have the complete opposite effect on some people, let's face it. But, you know, hey-ho, I guess it worked on Sekhmet. On the other hand, the Eye of Horus is more associated with things like protection, luck and healing. In the myth known as the Contendings of Horus and Set, Horus and his uncle Set are fighting over the throne of Egypt. This myth leads on from another myth known as the Osiris myth, where Set kills Osiris, the father of Horus. There is a lot more to it than that, as it also involves Set cutting Osiris's body into 14 pieces, and then the pieces being reassembled before Osiris becomes the first ever being to be embalmed. I'm not going to go into it all here, as it's a lengthy tale, but I would urge you to look up the story, as if you are not aware of it, it is both entertaining and incredibly weird. But basically, in the contendings of Horus and Set, Horus wants to take the throne back from Set, his uncle who usurped the throne. At one point, the two gods are doing battle, when Set rips out Horus's left eye and tears it into six pieces. More specifically, the six pieces that Stephen was talking about in this episode of Moon Knight. Although there are many different versions of this myth, in one of the more famous ones, Thoth, the god who resides over scribes and knowledge, reassembled the eye and healed it. Interestingly, the different parts of the eye were also used in fractions in ancient Egypt, often for measuring things like grain as well as medicine. For instance, the brow, which indicated thought, also represented the fraction one-eighth, whilst the pupil represented one-fourth. Basically put, although Stephen draws the Eye of Ra here and then claims that he's drawn the Eye of Horus, he is right that the Eye was split into six parts, though he then does use the Eye to help him figure out the layout of the tomb, which is not how ancient Egyptian tombs were made. A little after this, Layla sees a depiction of bald men on the walls of the tomb and claims they are Heka priests. She then both claims that they were entombed here to protect the pharaoh and that Heka priests were sorcerers. So, first things first, the idea that these priests would be entombed in order to protect the pharaoh is nonsense. What she's saying strongly hints at human sacrifice and outside of the First Dynasty, as I've talked about in previous episodes, this just didn't happen. However, in terms of Heka, he was actually a god who embodied magical power and energy, and indeed his role in Egyptian religion changed a lot during Pharaonic Egypt. During the Old Kingdom, rather than being a god in the typical sense, Heka was more of an energy that the pharaoh could possess. In several texts, the pharaoh hunts down gods and men and devours them, taking their power as he does. Now, of course, this is almost certainly a metaphorical idea, but this is basically what Heka was in the Old Kingdom. Essentially, it was a very abstract idea. But then, in the Book of the Dead from the New Kingdom, 
It is emphasized that the deceased will possess the magical universal power of Hecker in order to counteract the dangers of the underworld. So essentially, where in the Old Kingdom it was kind of more bloodthirsty, now it, it almost had the energy of being a bit protective in a way. Then, later still, during the Ptolemaic period, Hecker is seen as one of the protectors of Ra as he travels through the underworld. Therefore, the god and concept of Hecker changes substantially as Egyptian history goes on. But even still, this is not the end of the story, as the word Hecker also means magic in ancient Egypt. And in fact, whilst Heka never had a cult centre, as many other gods did in ancient Egypt, some professions associated with magic, such as healers for instance, were often called priests of Heka. So Layla calling these the priests of Heka isn't necessarily incorrect, though the idea she presents of them being entombed with the pharaoh is not right at all. Later still, as they travel through the tomb, Stephen sees snakeskin and claims that snakes were symbols of regeneration. There are several symbols of snakes in ancient Egypt. One famous example, for instance, is the Urabaris, which has the snake eating its own tail, and this is supposed to represent eternity, so, you know, the way it's creating essentially an everlasting loop. On top of this, the Egyptians believed that snakes not only existed eternally on the boundaries of the world, but they would continue to exist after its end. In Papyrus Bremner Rind, which seems to have been written at Thebes during the Ptolemaic period, they are even associated with the creation of the world. Basically, before the sky existed, before the earth existed, before solid ground even had been created, the creator god created snakes out of the primordial ocean. Unlike with the Urabara snake, these ones did not live forever. And when a snake died, the creator god mummified them and made offerings to them every year. However, it is worth noting that this was also done to symbolise regeneration. So basically put, what Stephen is saying here is pretty accurate. Snakes were absolutely a sign of regeneration. Nearish to the end of the episode, Stephen finds the burial chamber of the tomb and he's musing over who it could belong to. Two ideas he comes up with are that it could be the tomb of Thutmose II or the tomb of Nefertiti. What's really interesting about this is that these are two rulers who we do not know the locations of their tomb. Nefertiti, for instance, has several theories over where hers could be, and Thutmose II potentially has KV-42 in the Valley of the Kings. But the lack of funeral equipment in this tomb, as well as the lack of the Amduat in the tomb, make this unlikely. So the Amduat was basically a funeral text which was preserved for the pharaoh and was written on the walls of the tomb. So if the Amduat is not present, it probably means that this particular tomb was not made for a king. Therefore, it does make sense that Stephen would mention these two pharaohs, though it is worth noting that they are supposed to be close to Cairo right now and the capital under Nefertiti was Architaten, otherwise known as Amarna, and under Thutmose II, it was Thebes in modern-day Luxor. Therefore, a location near Cairo for either of these individuals seemed a little unlikely. But even so, I am quite impressed they've picked two pharaohs that we don't know the location of their tombs for, and they haven't gone with like the obvious ones like Cleopatra, for instance. Not saying there's anything wrong with Cleopatra, it's just a bit generic sometimes. 
I should probably say we don't actually know if Nefertiti was ever the pharaoh of Egypt, but it does seem as time goes on that it's becoming increasingly more likely that she would have been. Basically put, um, she was the queen of Akhenaten, who was a very controversial pharaoh, to say the least. I've spoken about him a few times, and I would recommend looking him up because he's got a very interesting reign, let's put it that way. But essentially, she's kind of almost shown as as equal in a lot of the depictions. And then suddenly, she just sort of disappears from the record books, and we don't know why. However, around this same time, she gets replaced by a co-regent named Nefer-Neferaten. It's basically theorised that when she became co-regent, she changed her name to this and did become a female pharaoh. We don't know for certain, but there is a possibility. I will say, when it comes to female pharaohs in general, I don't have an issue with Cleopatra. I think she's a very interesting pharaoh. But I do think a lot of the focus gets put onto her when there's actually several really interesting female pharaohs. So not only is possibly Nefertiti one of those examples, but you also have Hatshepsut, who had a really interesting reign and actually took Egypt to something of an economical height. And it's just sad that they get so much less recognition than Cleopatra. I mean, where are their dramatic series? Where are their documentaries? They, they, they are out there, but they're nowhere near as popular for some reason. Either way, let's move on to the next point. So when Stephen gets to the sarcophagus, he is shocked to see that there's Macedonian writing on it and theorises that this must be the tomb of Alexander the Great. He then pushes off the lid of the sarcophagus. First things first, Macedonian writing could indicate Alexander the Great, I guess. I mean, he did indeed come from Macedonia in Greece. However, there were quite a few Ptolemaic rulers, and so this is a bit of a leap, I guess. As for Stephen pushing off the lid of the sarcophagus, no, just no. This lid would be made of solid stone and it would weigh a ton. There is absolutely no way he would be able to push this off. During the research of this, I saw a couple of claims that Stephen had the power of Konsu and that was why he was able to push off this lid. But to be honest with you, I don't see this series hinting at that at all. For a start, Konsu is entrapped in stone at this point in the story, and secondly, when not wearing the suit, Stephen has not shown any signs of having powers, so I don't buy this argument. Also, when the lid is pushed off, Alexander the Great is just buried in the sarcophagus without any coffins whatsoever. I've said this in a few episodes, but this isn't how sarcophagi work. So, basically put, a sarcophagus is a big slab of stone normally, that is designed to hold the coffins of the deceased. You don't just bury a mummy in a sarcophagus on its own. Normally, pharaohs would have had three coffins, one inside of the other like Russian dolls, with the body of the deceased being in the smallest one in the inside. For this final point, I will say there is a bit of a spoiler, though I will try not to give away too much context. At the end of the episode, Mark and Stephen bump into Towerette. So Tauret is a hippo goddess who's associated with childbirth and fertility, and she's basically got her main focus of protecting women during childbirth. First things first, they have a woman playing the part, which, well, I mean, obviously that's correct. Though, admittedly, she is made up to look like a hippo with some incredibly bad CGI. It is worth noting, though, other than the presence of 
hippo here and the fact that she's played by a woman, pretty much everything else is inaccurate. Normally, Taurat would be made up of the head of a hippo, the legs and arms of a lion, the tail of a crocodile, and would also have human breasts. Though, I do suppose this last one may have put up the age rating somewhat. This quite strange depiction was supposed to deter malviolent spirits from harming women during childbirth. And it's worth noting that outside of the hippo, none of these other elements are visible at all as far as I could see. Also, in depictions, she's very often shown resting her arm on a SAR amulet, which is kind of like a loop that's tied together with string and symbolised protection. Once again, in the episode, this is not present at all. Overall, though, this episode does get a few bits right, and there are one or two nice little nods here and there. I did especially like how Stephen referred to two pharaohs who we do not know the locations of their tombs, so Nefertiti and Thutmose II, when trying to guess who the owner of the tomb was. Although, admittedly, the tomb is also near Cairo, and neither of these pharaohs would have had their tombs in that location. Also, it is interesting that he talks about the different aspects of the Eye of Horus. Though admittedly he does this as a way of trying to figure out the layout of the tomb, which again doesn't make any sense at all to be honest. However, although Layla gets some aspects of the Heka priests right, she also insinuates that they were buried alive to protect the king, which is something that just did not happen. And also, it can't be denied that the depiction of Taurat at the end just isn't very good. Overall, I would say this episode is very mixed in terms of historical accuracy. Once again, I do wonder if they did have some historical advisors for this episode, but at the same time, I do wonder how much they were listened to. And also, I feel there probably was a bit of a conflict between historical accuracy, what the comic books were doing, and what was just best for entertainment. As I always say, that's not a slight on the show at all. These shows are made for entertainment, and so of course they're not going to be 100% accurate. But in terms of this section of the episode, it does make it less accurate. Okay, we have now arrived at the review section. So here I'm just going to talk about what I feel the episode did well, what it did poorly, and then rate it out of 10. To begin with, at the beginning of the episode, we see that Konsu and Amit are not the only two gods to be turned into stone statues, as the statue of Konsu is placed amongst many others on a shelf. Personally, I really liked this. I kind of felt it brought into question how good the other gods really are here. It may be that all of these gods that have been turned into statues genuinely were dangerous and evil beings, but it also seems quite likely that maybe the gods that are turning them into statues are basically just over-controlling. It's hard to say at this point, but it is making me a little bit intrigued. We don't entirely know who the hero and the villains are, and that's a good thing. We, we kind of know, but we don't really know. Maybe that's me reading too much into it, but that's kind of the way I saw this scene. After all, they clearly made a mistake by turning Konsu into a statue, so why would they not have made other mistakes with other gods by turning them into statues? After this, we get kind of the proper introduction to the episode, which sees an unconscious Stephen in the sand of the desert, whilst Layla desperately tries to keep him safe whilst they are attacked by the followers of Amit. 
Once again, a very exciting scene here that has a lot of peril in it. It was also nice to see Layla take the centre stage here as it shows how capable she is. In fact, in general, this whole episode did a lot for Layla and made her into a far more interesting character. So for a start, we get a bit of a evolution of the relationship between her and Mark. And we realise that she's starting to get some feelings for Stephen as well. Basically put, she always sees Stephen as physically Mark, but with a sort of better personality, to be honest. And what's more, Stephen reciprocates this. He also likes Layla. So you get this kind of weird love triangle where two of the people are almost sort of the same person. And I will admit, I found this quite an interesting concept. There's also just one part where Mark makes Stephen punch himself in the face, which is admittedly very funny. However, far more importantly, we learn a little bit about Mark and Layla, which is something that I felt was desperately needed because up until this point, the only character that I've felt any kind of attachment to at all has been Stephen. And okay, yes, he's been carrying the show a little bit, but now he doesn't have to. Now I care about more than one character. So basically, the fact that Stephen kisses Layla makes Mark quite heartbroken, and this kind of humanises him, to be honest, and does make me feel quite sorry for him. And as for Layla, we learn a lot about her backstory in this episode. More specifically, about her father, who was an archaeologist who was murdered out on the field. However, this also ties into Mark's backstory. I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but basically we find out that the only reason she met Mark was because of her father's murder, and it is only in this episode that she finds out this. I'm not going to say too much more about this, but essentially it leads to Mark and Layla falling out. It leads to some genuine conflict where neither Layla or Mark are entirely in the right or wrong. Both of their arguments are controversial but justified. Moving away from character development, in general, the feel of this episode was also just very good, and moved through multiple genres. I was getting some strong adventure vibes as Stephen and Layla explored the tomb, and these quickly turned into horror, but then, at the very end, it turned into more of a psychological thriller. It really was something of a roller coaster ride. I am definitely not going to ruin the end of this episode, but I will say I did not see it coming and after seeing it, I absolutely need to keep on watching. In terms of the reviews for this episode, they stayed consistently good. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has 94%, and on IMDb, it has 8.2 out of 10. The general consensus is that this is the series at its best. It is seen as a significant spot in the story that adds mystery going forward. For myself... Personally, I agree. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin. While the Glow & Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM. I cannot speak for the episodes that come after this, but it has definitely been my favourite episode so far. There was not a single moment where I was bored, and it did a lot when it came to character development. I feel that this was an aspect that really needed some development, and now we have it, which is great. And finally, there was absolutely no way I was guessing the ending, and I thought the ending was awesome. I really don't have that many complaints about this episode, outside of some shoddy CGI, to be honest. Overall, I would give this episode an 8 out of 10. I am genuinely excited to see what happens in the next episode. Thank you very much for listening. I really hope you've enjoyed the episode. And if you have and you haven't already done so, why not consider subscribing, liking, leaving a comment? And join me on Monday, where we shall be looking at the 1981 film Sphinx. I hope you all have a fantastic weekend and see you then. Thank you.